American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hello and welcome to American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. If you like American Catholic history, please help others find it by sharing this episode and giving us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Schmidt. I mean, I, I mean, and I'm Tom Crow. <laughs> I gotcha. Okay, well, today we're diving into the backstory of a classic movie, the wonderful 1963 film, Lilies of the Field. Now, this topic recommended itself to us with the death of the main actor in the film, Sidney Poitier. Poitier was born and raised Catholic, though, unfortunately, he abandoned the faith during his lifetime, and his character in, in Lilies of the Field, Homer Smith, also wasn't Catholic. No, Smith is a Baptist and insists upon it during the film. Right. But the author of the book, William Barrett, was Catholic, and he based the book on the story of the Benedictine nuns at the Abbey of St. Wolberga in Colorado. And the film presents a number of themes and lessons that seem to be perennial, race relations in the U.S., attitudes towards immigrants and those who are other, religious devotion, plus gratitude, trust in God's providence, and generosity. Now, regular listeners know that Noel is the classic movie buff between us, but this is a classic movie that I was well familiar with long before we met. My mom absolutely loves this movie, and we watched it many times growing up. Some of the classic lines were just common phrases in our house. Mother Maria exclaiming, Schmidt, you build a chapel! Juan grunting about insurance. The dialogue, you got beans? Demos, senor. And then some of the great lines during the English lesson like, I stands up, y'all, plus others. The movie is just packed full of very human insights and very human characters. It is a delight. We're actually going to have a reading and discussion group with the book that the movie is based on over the next month. Well, starting in February. We invite everyone to join us. Get details at AmericanCatholicHistory.org slash reading. You'll find a place to purchase the book, plus the reading plan and inf information on when and where we will do the discussion sessions. We'd love to have lots of people join in. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, it's a really short book, so it'll be easy to read, but we won't give away too much about that discussion. And I haven't read the book yet, so I can't. <laughs> We're looking forward to it. But we are going to talk now a bit about the backstory of the book and what it took to make the movie and more. At the outset, I must say, this movie always made me think of the miraculous staircase in the Loretto Chapel at Santa Fe, New Mexico. We told the story way back in episode 17. Check it out. And then join us in 2023 for a pilgrimage to Santa Fe to see it in person. Now, I've seen that staircase twice. It is incredible. Whether or not it really is miraculous, it is a sight to behold. But back to the lilies of the field. We'll start with the backstory of the author of the story, William E. Garrett. Garrett was Catholic. He was born in 1900 in New York City and with his family moved to Denver as a teen. 
He returned to New York for college, but apart from that and a short stint in Washington, D.C. while he was researching for a book, he lived most of his life in Denver. He served as a lecturer in the Air Force and as an aeronautical consultant for, of all places, the Denver Public Library. He and his wife were married for 57 years, and he died in Denver in 1986. Along the way, he wrote 20 novels, many short stories, book reviews of Flannery O'Connor, and a biography of Pope Paul VI, published in 1964 under the title Shepherd of Mankind. Three of his novels were turned into movies. The first was The Left Hand of God, published in 1951 and made into a movie of the same name in 1955, starring the great Humphrey Bogart. The second was Lilies of the Field, published in 1962 with the movie released in 1963. And the third was The Wine and the Music, published in 1968 and turned into a 1970 movie, Pieces of Dreams. One interesting thing about the film Lilies of the Field and the book is that even before the book was published in 1962, a screenplay based on it was already in the works. None of the articles we read gave the narrative of how this happened, but since Barrett had already had one book turned into a movie, not a lot of imagination is needed to suppose that movie makers kept their contacts with him and his newest projects. Barrett had completed the manuscript of the book sometime in the late 1950s, so the Hollywood folks had time to work with it before the book came out in 1962. In this case, the man who made the project happen was the director, Ralph Nelson, and he worked with screenwriter James Poe. So they were the ones with the manuscript and the big screen plans. But the film wasn't perfectly true to the book, and the book wasn't 100% true to the sisters on whom it was based. Right. Barrett based the story on the sisters of the Abbey of St. Walburga outside of Boulder, Colorado. But Barrett actually changed two things for his narrative. First, he placed the Sisters Abbey in a valley to the west of the Rocky Mountains. Boulder is on the eastern slope near Denver. We don't have any idea why he changed that, but it might just have been to separate the identity of his literary nuns from the real-life sisters. And second, he placed the narrative in the context of the Cold War. The real-life sisters of Wahlberger had come over in 1935 from the Abbey at Eichstätt in Germany. They weren't fleeing for their lives at that point, but the mother superiors saw the rise of the Nazis as very bad news, and she sent groups of sisters to different places in the U.S. to establish priories where the rest of the sisters at Eichstadt could flee to if things really did go south in Germany. Obviously, they kind of did. Barrett, writing for his audience who didn't need to think back to the Nazis to think about bad things in Germany, wrote that the sisters had fled communist East Germany. He even had them dramatically come over the wall. Ralph Nelson and James Poe, since they were making a film for the same audience, accepted the Cold War angle. But they took a further liberty with the location. They placed their story in the desert of Arizona, so not anywhere in or near the Rockies. The actual filming was just north of Tucson on land apparently owned by Linda Ronstadt's father. So the screenplay in hand, Nelson worked to find a studio who would take on the project. It took a while. Studios were wary of a film with neither romance nor violence. Not only that, but the main characters were a black man and a bunch of nuns. Not exactly the sort of thing studios were looking for in the early 1960s. Yeah, no. But as it turned out, they were the sort of thing that people wanted. 
Another truth that hasn't changed, our cultural betters may know what they want to show the public, but they spend little time finding out what the public wants. And then they're shocked when the movies they dismiss as too quaint or simple turn out to be box office hits. The Sandra Bullock film, The Blind Side, has an interesting backstory along these lines, but that's for another time. Mm -hmm, Yeah. One studio said they'd take the film, but they required a change. They wanted one of the nuns who was not yet in final vows to become a love interest with Homer Smith. That, of course, would have ruined the film. Ralph Nelson rightly rejected this suggestion. Ah, yes. Another studio said they'd take the film if Homer Smith were made a white guy and the role were offered to Steve McQueen. Now, I love Steve McQueen, but that would have ruined the film utterly. Yes. Ralph Nelson recognized that the brilliance of the script was in the interplay of the various downtrodden persons involved. An itinerant black man, immigrant German nuns who barely spoke the language, a cynical Irish priest, a white businessman who was also searching, though he doesn't know it, and a bunch of ethnic Mexicans. And they probably weren't immigrants. They were probably descendants of those families who lived there in that area in the mid-1800s when the national boundary between the U.S. and Mexico shifted far south to where it is today. If you change any of these even a bit, the balance of the story is thrown off and it just doesn't work quite as well. Nelson eventually landed a contract with Rainbow Productions and with it a budget of a modest $250,000. In today's dollars, that's just $2.3 million. And even that modest $250,000 had strings attached. The company was so adamant that Nelson should take the risk rather than them that they required that he offer collateral. So Nelson actually offered his own home as collateral on the $250,000. Nelson was so confident in this script that he did it. Next, Nelson needed his cast. He first offered the role of Homer Smith to Harry Belafonte, but Belafonte thought Smith was too uninteresting and plain. Also, Smith didn't do anything to address the social justice issues that Belafonte was absolutely dedicated to. He rejected the role. So Nelson turned to Sidney Poitier. Now, Poitier wasn't quite yet the huge star that he would become, but he was, by this point, commanding a pretty decent salary per film. In fact, the entire budget for Lilies of the Field, that $250,000, well, that was only about half of what Poitier was earning per film at this point. But he read the script, and his reaction to it was far different from Harry Belafonte's. Where Belafonte saw an uninteresting character who didn't do anything for social justice, Poitier saw a good man and good women and other good characters, all of whom certainly had their flaws, but all of them showed enough grace and empathy and vulnerability that all of them were affected for the good, and in this, Poitier saw a good effect on social justice. Honestly, when you put it that way, it reads like a Frank Capra script. Right? We talked about Capra twice, most recently in episode 127. Capra said of his films, My films must let every man, woman, and child know that God loves them, that I love them, and that peace and salvation will become a reality only when they all learn to love each other. Yeah, and Poitier said something similar about the roles that he chose during his career. He said, I try to make motion pictures about the dignity, nobility, the magnificence of human life. 
Annie continued, I like to have people coming out of a theater feeling better than when they went in. This fits in quite well with the writing style of William Barrett, actually. Barrett received criticism in his day for having so many of his stories culminate in happy endings. Again, something that Capra was criticized for. Right. And Barrett replied, I believe that life produces more happy endings than unhappy endings, regardless of the physical appearances to the contrary. Happiness is always cheated in the census because people count their miseries carefully and catalog them, accepting their blessings without thought. Now, that's a challenging reminder. How many times do we just take our blessings for granted? Yeah, way too often. More often than I like to dwell on right now. So anyway, Poitier agreed to take just $50,000 for this film. But he also insisted on getting 10% of the gross earnings because he believed in it so much. In fact, once the rest of the cast was assembled, there was no money left over to hire stunt doubles or body doubles to do the scenes with significant exertion. So when you see Homer Smith picking up the large timbers or the heavy adobe bricks and doing the masonry work, that really is Sidney Poitier. And those are real timbers and real bricks. Poitier said, when you believe in a picture like this, you do anything to help it get made. And so there he was, sweating and working in the southern Arizona sun, building a chapel. Yeah, about that. The whole shoot actually took just 14 days, and it was on rented property just north of Tucson. The chapel they built was a real chapel. It wasn't there when filming began, and it was there when filming ended just 14 days later. Poitier and the crew had really built it with the crew working during the off times and overnight between shoots to get it to the level of completion required for the next day's filming. And when it was all over, they had to dismantle the whole thing and get it off that rented land. Once filming was over, all Poitier and the rest of them could do was wait for its release and reception by viewers and critics alike. When it was released... It was a sleeper success, and nobody expected that. In its first six months, it earned $2.5 million. For Poitier, with his 10% cut, that meant $250,000. Where have I heard that number before? Yeah, really. <laughs> in today's dollars, that means it earned $22.8 million in its first six months, earning Poitier just under $2.3 million. Not a bad payoff for taking that meager salary up front. Seriously, I'd take it. And the film continued to bring in cash, and it still does. It has been a beloved and sought-out film since its release. Nelson and Poitier both knew a good thing when they saw it in that script, something that draws people in and raises their hopes for humanity. Think, you have immigrant nuns, only one of whom speaks any English, and hers is pretty terrible. They are barely surviving in that arid, inhospitable climate, but their life is better than what they fled in communist East Germany. You have Homer Smith, an itinerant black handyman who was just passing through, but gets drawn in by the sister's plight and the hope that one day he'll be paid for his labor. You have the cynical, alcoholic Irish priest, Father Murphy, who is just doing his duty, but he resents that God didn't put him in a beautiful church and make him a monsignor. You have the simple, faithful, hardworking Mexicans who just want their sacraments and a proper church. The sisters want to provide this church for them, and Mother Maria sees Smith's arrival as the manifestation of her prayers. God has sent her a big, strong man who will build them a chapel. And then for worldly relief, you have Juan, the apostate manager of the gas station. And then you have the wealthy, successful, bigoted Mr. Ashton, who, by the way, is played by the director, Ralph Nelson. Again, small budget. 
Through the interplay of Smith's simple goodness and his empathy for the sister's plight, plus the insistence and faith of Mother Maria that God will bring good out of all bad situations, most good things do resolve. Some of the racial friction gets resolved as well. Interestingly, apart from Mr. Ashton calling Homer Smith boy at one point and doubting his ability to use heavy equipment, the only other bigoted comment comes from Juan. Homer Smith and he are talking in the diner, and Smith asks Juan why he doesn't go to church. Juan says, Father Murphy, he drinks, Smith says, but he's a priest. And Juan says, he's Irish. And Smith just says, oh, in a somewhat sympathetic and knowing way. Now, I laugh because I, I just do, but there it is. Ashton's anti-black bigotry is dealt with when Homer Smith first demonstrates that he is, in fact, quite capable of using heavy equipment and that he is serving as lead architect and engineer on the chapel building project. The anti-Irish bigotry, on the other hand, isn't quite clearly overcome, but Father Murphy has his moment of healing. It comes toward the very end when he realizes how selfish he had been all these years, resenting that he isn't in a grand church. He's feeling humility, shame, and gratitude for the church that this humble nun, who had nothing, managed to get built through her simple, indomitable faith. That scene toward the end between Father Murphy and Mother Maria is just lovely. He is, he is practically confessing his sins of pride and selfishness to her and admitting his own hubris. But now he sees the hand of God working through her. Mother Maria, with her own pride and her own humility, really can't handle his attentions and praise. She demurs, but she clearly is affected. Now, a note about Mother Maria. She was played brilliantly by Lilia Scala. Scala had only been in one other feature-length film, Call Me Madam, and that was back in 1953, so an entire decade before. Scala was 67 when Lilies of the Field was filmed, and like Sidney Poitier dealing with racism, she had real-life experience to bring to her role. In the film, Mother Maria and her sisters had fled communist-controlled East Germany after living under the Nazis. Well, Lilia Scala grew up in Vienna, Austria. Her mother was Catholic, but her father was Jewish. And in 1922, she married a Jewish man. In the hopes of hiding their Jewishness, she and her husband took her mother's maiden name, Scala. But even with that precaution, the Scalas knew they had to flee when the Anschluss happened and the Nazis annexed Austria into Germany. So in 1939, Lilia Scala and her family left Austria for the United States due to the likelihood of persecution and very possible death. And both Poitier and Scala were brilliant, so much so that both were nominated for Academy Awards, with Poitier winning for Best Actor in a Leading Role in 1964. His win marked the first time a black man won an Oscar, and only the second time an Oscar went to a black person, with the first going to Hattie McDaniel in 1940 for her supporting role in Gone with the Wind. Now, I watched the clip of the presentation to Poitier, and Bancroft was the presenter. The other other nominees were Rex Harrison, Richard Harris, Paul Newman, and Albert Finney. You know, some of the great names of the end of the golden era in Hollywood. Yeah, so it was stiff competition, but Poitier deserved it. He was absolutely brilliant. And the look on Anne Bancroft's face, plus the loud, sustained applause when his name was spoken, showed just how much the assembled glitterati were in agreement that Poitier well-deserved this Oscar. Mm -hmm. In 2020, Lilies of the Field was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress 
as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. And it's easy to see why. The themes are perennial. Seeing humanity in others rather than their conditions or their weaknesses. Setting aside what one wants to spend time to help others in need. Giving without expecting much in return, and then being pleasantly surprised by what one receives. And the catharsis of work hard, pray hard, play hard, trust that God will take care of the rest. It's all there. Lilies of the Field has remained one of the most beloved films from the end of Hollywood's golden era. Not bad for a film that no studio wanted. The director put up his home as collateral to make, had a measly budget, and took only two weeks to film. But it was God's work. And as they say at the end, I build a chapel. I build the chapel. You build a chapel. You build the chapel. Oh, we build a chapel. We build the chapel. He built the chapel. Amen. 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 You've been listening to American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please help others find it by sharing this episode and giving us a five-star rating and a good review. Be sure to check out our sponsor, Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. Also, please support the many fine productions of SQPN at SQPN.com give. To learn more about Lilies of the Field, to find previous episodes, or to learn about our upcoming pilgrimages to important and unforgettable Catholic holy sites, please... Or to join our mailing, our mailing list and join us on the reading list. Please visit AmericanCatholicHistory.org and be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter for the latest information and updates. We also love feedback and hearing about great Catholic history sites and stories from all over. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Catholic History, on Instagram at ACH underscore podcast, or follow us on Twitter at ACH1513. I'm Noelle Huster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media and produced by StarQuest. Schmidt, you finished podcast! <laughs> oh my God.